Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 14, the gospel according to Mark. We've been working our way through now the last few chapters in this study of the life and sufferings of Jesus. And I want to say to you tonight, if you have ever been the innocent object of injustice, then you can relate to the story of Jesus. And Jesus can relate to you. As we think about the end of his life, our thoughts often turn, turn to the crucifixion and his death. But before that came a series of trials in which he was falsely accused and then condemned for what he actually was. And so an innocent man found himself appearing before a variety of kinds of trials, Jewish and Roman, ecclesiastical and civil, religious and political trials tonight. And I want to take them in whole tonight. We'll look at both of them from Mark's perspective. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 14, verse 53 through 65. And then we're going to turn to chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. As we watch these unfold, we might ask, has there ever been a greater miscarriage of justice? And we might ask, why is this happening? And what good does it bring? And so let me invite you to consider these last hours of the life of Jesus, beginning at Mark chapter 14, verse 53. Hear now the word of God. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And now chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning... The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked 
him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, would you cause your word to give light to our eyes and joy to our hearts and life in our souls? For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Tonight I want to break this down into its various trials. And we want to ask the question, how was Jesus mistreated? Then we want to look at the very fact that he was, in fact, mistreated. And then we want to ask, why was he mistreated? And how does any of that help us? And so I want to begin with the question, how? Was he mistreated? From chapter 14, the ecclesiastical trial, beginning at verse 53, Mark describes both that religious and then that, that political trial. We, we know from the other gospel accounts that this lasted all night long. Here, the trial before the Jewish leaders assembled in council, it's called the Sanhedrin, uh, and It says, verse 53, that they led Jesus to the high priest and all of the elders and the the priests, the high priests, the scribes, they all came together and the whole council is seeking testimony against Jesus in order to put him to death, but they find none. Now, everything about what's happening here is contrary to Jewish law, contrary to the law of the Sanhedrin that the rabbis themselves had decided on, and contrary to the Old Testament law. This Sanhedrin consists of 71 leading members, leading men in Israel, who all ought to know better and do better. And they had been given certain kinds of power by the Roman government. The Roman government, of course, Uh, was in charge, but they were savvy enough to know that the Jews weren't going to honor them in every way, certainly not in religious things. And so the council had a right in certain religious discussions and in certain political things. And so here they are supposed to judge matters of Jewish law. And they gather Jesus. And I just want to highlight how rotten 
this trial really is. Let me, let me give you eight or nine things that, that go on. In the first place, the Sanhedrin usually gathered publicly in the halls of the temple. But here they gather in secret, in privacy, in a private home. Normally, uh, this is all to be done in daytime, yet they hold this trial late at night. By their own rules, we know that no trial for life was to be held at night. But here the hour is something like 1 to 3 in the morning. I was struck by a reading in the book of Acts that when they actually arrested Peter and the others, they held them over for the night and began the trial in the morning. But not so with Jesus. In the middle of the night, they hold this. And the law of the rabbis had said no hearings in the case of a, a judicial capital case, a capital where capital punishment is on the table. None of those could be initiated on the eve of a major festival like Passover. And yet that is exactly what they're doing, breaking their own rule on that. And the witnesses against Jesus here, well, they're false. They're false witnesses. Their testimony has been previously prepared and the outcome has already been decided and they've gathered these witnesses just to nail Jesus. And yet even the witnesses can't agree. They can't get together. It says they bore a false witness against him and yet their testimony didn't agree. Now what ought to have happened is this. According to Deuteronomy chapter 19, it's very explicit that in death penalty cases like this, you've got to have two or three witnesses whose testimony agrees and the judges shall inquire. And if a witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then the Old Testament says, you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. It's a dangerous thing to accuse somebody of a capital crime. You could be liable if you were found false, and yet these men are found false. But Jesus is the one who does. And more than this, they're supposed to let a day pass between the verdict of guilt and the sentence of punishment. Now, this is their own rule. In order to allow time for mercy to be considered and time for reflection, in fact, they would normally take another vote which could overturn the sentence of death. Now, they wouldn't overturn an acquittal previously voted on. You didn't have to sweat that out overnight. But they were supposed to allow time for reconsideration. But here, everything is done in haste. And the verdict is announced the very same day as the sentence is carried out. Friday morning they gather and decide, we want him dead. And by Friday afternoon... Jesus is on the cross. And more than this, after they have a variety of false witnesses testify who can't get their act together, some others come forward with what seems to be a terrible charge that Jesus had supposedly, and this is some two years prior in his ministry at least, supposedly said, and they maliciously twist his words, saying, well, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days... I will build another not made with hands. Now you understand their testimony even about that doesn't agree, but it doesn't agree with what Jesus himself had said. He had said, destroy the temple, and he was speaking of the temple of his own body. And he will rebuild it in three days. He will resurrect in three days. And so because the testimony is so obviously false, 
Jesus ought to have been let go at that point. Nobody has yet accused him of anything for which he's guilty. And yet the presider, the high priest stands up in the midst of it. And then he begins to ask Jesus questions to make Jesus become his own accuser. After all the other charges are untrue. And so he stands up and he says to them, well, have you no answer to make to these men? What is it that these men testify against you? And Jesus, it says, remains silent and he makes no answer. Why? Because he's proven innocent. But then the high priest, after, after examining Jesus himself and another line of argument we'll get to, after he gets that answer, rather than waiting for everybody else, to place their vote, he comes out and votes first. It would be like being at a trial where there's a judge and a jury of your peers, and the judge at the end of it says, you're guilty. Hey, what do the rest of you guys think? And of course, the high priest says, you're guilty. And then he says, what do the rest of you think? And of course, they follow right in line. But all of that is against, you understand. The common rules of law. Everything here is unethical and immoral and unjust what is going on well on the one hand God is highlighting for you the innocence the purity of his own son in contrast to the false testimony of his accusers and in contrast to the wicked conduct of the judges they find nothing to hold against him because he is truly innocent We might ask the question, if Jesus is truly innocent, why why then does he remain silent after the initial charges are brought? Well, his silence highlights, on the one hand, the failed prosecution, right? He doesn't justify these charges against him by speaking to them. He doesn't even dignify the question. It's a kangaroo court. He knows it. But he also remains silent to fulfill scripture. Explicitly, the text says... That this was done to fulfill scripture in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7. It says, as we read earlier in the service, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Yet when he finally does speak, and he does, when the high priest actually places him under oath, And asks him, are you the Christ? The other gospel writers tell you this. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus then says, I am. And so he's silent against all the false accusations. But when placed under oath, he testifies clearly that he is indeed the son of God. He admits his real identity. He's now ready publicly to state he's the Messiah. And then he looks beyond that to the to the resurrection of the dead and his return with power, coming again in judgment. It's almost as if he's saying to this high priest who's judging him wickedly, one day the tables are going to be turned and I will be revealed as judge and you will be the accused. And so the high priest then, on hearing that, condemns him for blasphemy, a capital crime punishable usually by stoning. And the consequence is, of all of this, friends, is that, on the one hand, the claim that Jesus never claimed to be God, 
is false. You'll hear that. People will rifle through the New Testament and say, well, show me where Jesus claimed to be deity. And you have it right here. It's not a story his followers make up. It's what his enemies understood him to be saying. They understood him to be claiming to be God. That's why they charge him with blasphemy. And the high priest tears his garment, says, what other further witnesses do we need? And they all condemn him deserving of death. And yet he doesn't deserve it. And so you see that Jesus is determined to go to the cross. He does not deserve to bear injustice for a greater good. To have evil men mistreat him for the sake of being a blessing to others. He does not display his power even to call down angels against these men because he had come to die and nothing is going to stand in his way. This is his purpose. And so some begin to spit on him. They begin to mock him. They cover his face and say, oh, prophesy. Tell tell us who did this to you, Jesus. And then they hand them over to the guards to be received with blows. Now that's the, the farce of a trial that Jesus endured in the church. And then he's handed over to the Roman government. And he's handed over to Pilate the next morning. Uh, and and, and they've, they've whispered in Pilate's ear, this man is a dangerous political insurrectionist. They can't get the Roman government to kill Jesus for blasphemy, a religious, a, a religious crime. And so they, they say, well, you know, he does claim to be king. And a claim to be king, of course, would, would be a claim to be a rival of Caesar, perhaps, and, and would force Pilate to deal with Jesus. And so Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, you have said so. We know from the other gospel writers that Jesus says that he is a king, but that his kingdom is not of this world. That in a sense, his kingdom is of no threat to the Roman government. Pilate dismisses the very threat. He doesn't think Jesus has any power or is of any threat. But Jesus affirms that he is, in fact, king. And then they accuse him of all kinds of other things, and he remains silent. And Pilate is just stunned. How could you let this go on? Why would you not defend yourself, he seemed to say, to say about Jesus. Even Pilate recognizes that Jesus is innocent. In chapter 15, verse 14, Pilate says to the crowd, why should I crucify him? What evil has he done? In other words, I find no fault with him. And so he's unwilling until the crowd is stirred up and they cry out, crucify. And he says, really? And they say, crucify. And he says, but why? And they say, crucify him. And Pilate, as it were, licks his finger, sticks in the air, and he feels which way the wind is blowing. And like a politician who gives politicians a bad name, he satisfies the crowd against what he knows to be right. And he hands Jesus over, the innocent Jesus over, to be crucified. It's all rotten, but Jesus is good. That's the first thing I want you to see, how he was mistreated. But I want you to see a second thing, and that is this, that he was mistreated. In chapter 15, it's very early in the morning, likely around 5 a.m., when the religious leaders of Israel have decided that Jesus must die. Rome has taken away from them the power 
to execute. And so they've taken him to Pilate. But in doing so, here's a a sweet reassurance for you who believe this story. Because had it simply been the Jewish religious leaders killing off Jesus, there is a sense in which you and I might never have heard of him. In In this way, Israel is a small, insignificant, backwater nation at the time this is occurring. And all of this could have been done secretly in in the dark. And no one would have been wiser. But instead they take him to the governor functioning under the rule and authority of the most powerful nation, the most widespread nation on earth in its day, Rome. And it places this event on the historical map. We simply cannot ignore it. It's a verifiable event of history. Now, it's true that until 1961, the only archaeological evidence we had for the existence of Pilate was nothing. (laughs) That was a strange way to say it, I realize. We had no archaeological... Now, we had in the history books the record because of the Bible itself and other things, but, but we had no physical archaeological evidence for the existence of this man until... In 1961, in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, Italian archaeologists discovered two-foot-by-three-foot stones with something like three-inch lettering on them, written in Latin, translated, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has presented the Tiberium to the Caesareans. He had made some gift, and they had, they had placed it in stone. But it places Pilate on the archaeological map. Now listen, the life and death of Jesus cannot be ignored by any of us. But the faith of Christians has never stood on the discoveries of Italian archaeologists. You'll be glad to know. For 2,000 years, Christians have believed the Bible apart from any outside archaeological evidence in support of it, Christians ultimately believe the Bible, not because of some outside evidence, but because of the internal power of the word as God, writing that word on our hearts by his spirit with power, has persuaded us these things are true. And we've begun to delight in the story of Jesus It tells, but we should know this, all of us. The evidence of the archaeologists is one more reason you cannot reject the truth of the Bible. You cannot turn your back on this. It places it on the map of history. He really suffered, friends. And do you know what that means because of the claim? He's God. In the flesh you have before you a God who all night long endures mental and emotional suffering. He must have been exhausted from the experience of this relentless miscarriage of justice. Can you imagine? We know that Mark has just given us the core 
of the injustice. The other gospel writers fill out the whole evening's activities. We know that the religious trials actually begin with Annas, who's the chief high priest, and then they take Jesus from him to the son-in-law, Caiaphas, the high priest. And that even the the civil trial of Pilate, the other gospel writers tell us, um, that, that they take him to Pilate, and there's an intermission when Pilate sends him off to Herod. Herod is another ruler, and he's responsible for the area of Galilee. And Pilate at one point thinks, well, I don't really want to do anything with this man. He seems innocent enough. We'll send him off to Herod, make Herod deal with him. And Herod turns right around and says, I don't want to deal with this man. And he sends him right back to Pilate. And so Pilate is, as the story is very clear, the one who finally hands him over to be crucified. It's interesting, the Bible says that Pilate and Herod, who were previously enemies, became friends over this incident. But think how mentally and emotionally exhausting it would have been for Jesus to be dragged around all night long, having already been betrayed by a close companion, having already had his disciples flee his presence, and now to be lied about to his face, to be misunderstood and misrepresented, to be spat on and hit. How wearying. And the Bible would say to you, it happened. Your God is a suffering God. And if you have been the victim of, the innocent victim of, criminal injustice, mistreatment, from the church, from the government, from a judge or a lawyer, in whatever way, you have a God who gets it. He has been right where you are. And that is the beauty of the story. Why did Jesus go along with it? We know that it was the Father's plan that it should happen this way. That same chapter in Isaiah, chapter 53, it says in verse 10 that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Oh, friends, just as the psalmist says of us, all the days ordained for Jesus were written in God's book before one of them came to be. And this is a key point in preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 2. Verses 22 to 23, when Peter proclaims the fullness of the gospel, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Oh, there is no accident happening here, my friends. And this is not humanity out of control, but this is God the Father appointing His Son to suffer injustice on our behalf. Now, I want to say to you, dear friends, as Jesus said, the servant is not above his master. And just as God had a plan for Jesus and He fulfilled it, God has a plan for you And he is working all things together for good for those whom he has called, even as you taste injustice yourself. Friends, this is all written on the map of history, but the last thing I want you to consider is this, and more briefly, 
Why? Why is Jesus mistreated? And in a word, substitution. And we see that in a number of ways. We see substitution in the story beginning at verse 6 with Barabbas. It's the feast. And a prisoner is normally let go. Uh, An act of clemency. Uh, They give the crowd a man they want, uh, releasing him from the punishment he deserves. And the crowd comes up to Pilate and they ask, "Can, can we have a man? And Pilate says to them, sure. Do you want the king of the Jews? Now he's reaching out. He's tweaking their nose because he knows that they hate Jesus, that they envy Jesus. Uh, and that though Jesus is no threat to Pilate, he could say, you want your king back? No? Oh, here's what I'm going to do to him. But the other option is a man who is an insurrectionist. He actually is a political insurrectionist. He's a violent man. He's a murderer. The other gospels clearly articulate this and the crowds are offered Barabbas or Jesus what a picture of the gospel friends what do I mean by that well the crowds choose Barabbas and the guilty is freed while the innocent savior is punished the great sinner is delivered and the sinless one remains bound Or as Augustine put it, the criminal escaped and Christ is crucified. It is substitution, even there. But more than that, friends, it goes deeper than that. It goes further back than that. When you consider the evils, the evils for which they eventually crucified Jesus, what are they? Blasphemy on the religious side and treason on the political side. He's a king. Or so they say, blasphemy and treason are crimes. They're not if you're God and you're king. But listen, these two sins are our great sin. These are the sins of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When they said, believing the lie, we shall be as God. They wanted to make themselves as God. And they said, we don't want you to rule over us, Father. We want to do what we want to do. We will rule ourselves. Treason and blasphemy. And you see in Jesus the great exchange that he became what he was not. A condemned criminal. So that we might become what we are not innocent before God. This is how God pardons and accepts as righteous the ungodly. Christ takes your place. The just for the unjust to bring you to God. So we, we, we ought to ask the question, who killed Jesus then? Who's responsible for his death? Is it, is it the Jewish leadership? Is it the Roman leadership? Is it the bloodthirsty crowd stirred up by their leaders? Is it the common people who killed Jesus? Is an interesting line in Bach's musical composition, The Passion of St. Matthew, in which the, the choir sings, Who is it that hit you? And you know the response? I. I and my sins. Bach would say to us, Who is it that hit Jesus? Who is it that... That, that slapped him across the face. I, I, 
and my sins. I killed Jesus. This is the gospel. He substituted himself in the place that I deserve. That I might be free. Oh friends, do you know how loved you are? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you loved us. And thank you that you gave yourself for us. I pray that you would set every heart free in you. For we ask it in your name. Amen.